Hey everyone, welcome or welcome back to the Brave Church Podcast, and thanks for listening. At the end of this talk, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook or Instagram, where you can get even more connected to what's going on in our community. But most importantly, we hope the following talk inspires you to take your next step in finding or following Jesus. So good to be here. Uh, I met Pastor Samuel uh, about a year ago. We were in the beautiful country of Canada in Banff and at a pastor's network retreat, um, which is my role at the church up in Portland, which is called West Side of Jesus Church. Um, and so he and I were roomies, so I got to know him. And then this year, uh, Darren and Tracy came. So I, I almost got adoption papers out and were just like, would you guys just let me be a part of the family? Um, but it's so great to be here with you this morning. Uh, I lived in LA for my first years of life when the Raiders were still a part of LA. But I heard they were moving to Vegas, so it doesn't matter, right? No, you guys aren't even that sad about uh, the, them anymore. Are you sad? Is that a sad thing? Yeah. Oh, sorry to salt the wound. I apologize. Um, I'm new around here. Um, <laughs> Hey, we're going to get into scripture this morning, and if you want to go ahead and turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 27, it'll be in the pamphlets if you have those, and also up on the screen. We're in Psalm chapter 27 as we get into the scriptures together this morning. Psalm 27, verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation, so why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress protecting me from danger. So why should I tremble? When evil people come to devour me, when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. Even if I am attacked, I will remain confident. The one thing I ask of the Lord, the one thing I seek most is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. For he will conceal me there when troubles come. He will hide me in his sanctuary. He will place me out of reach on a high rock. Then I will hold my head high above my enemies who surround me. At his sanctuary, I will offer sacrifices with shouts of joy, singing and praising the Lord with music. Hear me as I pray, O Lord. Be merciful and answer me. My heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I am coming. Do not turn your back on me. Do not reject your servant in anger. You have always been my helper. Don't leave me now. Don't abandon me, O God of my salvation. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. Teach me how to live, O Lord. Lead me along the right path, for my enemies are waiting for me. Do not let me fall into their hands, for they accuse me of things I've never done. With every breath, they threaten me with violence. Yet I am confident I will see the Lord's goodness while I'm here in the land of the living. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. And the church says... Let's pray together. Father, now as we look at the scriptures and we read the words of the psalmist David, I ask now that by the Holy Spirit, you would be our teacher, that you would inspire us and give us instruction from your word. I pray the Holy Spirit would be doing all the speaking today and that uh, God, you would just 
Guide us and help us to experience you in this time together. In Jesus' name, we all said. So for me, one of the most pressing parts of Psalm 27, and I think you'd agree, it's a pretty amazing piece of scripture, as all scripture given by inspiration of God is. But, but verse four, I want to draw your attention to, specifically because David is so specific. He says, the one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I most seek. Now, if you know much about David, the psalmist, who wrote Psalm 27, uh, at this time of his life, most thinkers and Bible scholars believe that this was the time he was fleeing from Saul, who was the current king. David had been anointed to be the king, and because Saul felt threatened because of David's anointing and presence, he began hunting David down in order to kill him. And so for 15 years, David's running from cave to cave and city to city, afraid of the spear of Saul and his army. And during this time, he puts pen to parchment and writes Psalm 27. So when you read Psalm 27, keep that in mind, what's going on in David's life. And the thing that impresses me about his prayer and request in verse four in particular is that with all this going on, he says, there's only one thing I desire of the Lord. And he doesn't ask, Lord, deliver me from Saul's spear. And you know, when we're in times of trouble, often that is our go-to. We pray that God would deliver us from those specific things. But rather than that, David says, again, note verse four, the thing I most seek is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to delight in the Lord's perfection and meditate in his temple. David's desire in the midst of trouble is for the presence of God. Are you guys ready to talk about the presence of God this morning? I mean, is there anything else to talk about, really? The presence of God in our lives? Now, the theological community, when we talk about who God is, which, you know, in some ways we're all theologians. Anyone who has a view on God is a theologian because theology is basically theos, God, ology, study of. So anyone looking to study to know God is a theologian. So welcome to church, theologians. Uh, fellow theologians, but the theological community has put together what they call the three omnis of God. Anybody heard of the three omnis of God? Um, well, you're going to this morning, so welcome to church. Um, the, the, the theological community to describe God's nature, the vastness of God's nature, has put in three terms that, first of all, God is omnipotent or omni, all potent. That is, he's all powerful. Would you agree? Amen? Okay, you guys can say, are you one of those churches that talks back to the preacher? Only if he's preaching good. So if you guys are quiet, I'll be like, oh, thanks. <laughs> um, so God's omnipotent. He's all powerful. But then the Bible talks about God being omniscient or he's all science, all knowledge. And so those two truths are, are there for us to understand God. He's all powerful. He's all knowing. But then there's this phrase that God is omnipresent. That is, he's everywhere at all times. Now, this is a, 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 a simple definition for God's omnipresence. He's everywhere at all times in his fullness. Now, just think about that for a moment. He's everywhere at all times in fullness. He never shows up anywhere. He's always been there. So we use phrases sometimes when we're praying like, God showed up. Not really. He was there already. When we, when we, so when we say that, we're saying something. 
Because really, reality is, is God is here in San Ramon, California, at Brave Church. At the same time, he's with my wife, Shannon, and my four kids, the Fowler Four, in Portland, Oregon. And he's in China. And he's in the Congo in Africa. And he's on Pluto. And he's filling every crevice of his universe. He's omnipresent everywhere at all times in his fullness. So when we talk about a theology of God's presence, what we're not saying is that God suddenly sees you in trouble and goes, oh, I better show up. God has always been there. The Bible says he will never leave you or forsake you. Amen? God is always with us. But what we're talking about when we experience the presence of God is a term called special presence or manifest presence. So I'll give you another definition. It's a morning of definitions. Um, this, this theology of the manifest presence of God simply is this, God revealing himself in such a way that his glory, attributes, and splendor is felt, experienced, or seen. We might say it's when heaven meets earth. You know, Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on as it is in. This is the manifest presence of God when heaven and earth come crashing into each other. This is what the Celtic Christians called the thin places. They believed that there are certain spaces and times when the veil between heaven and earth got very thin and you experienced the special manifest presence of God. How many of you want more of that in your life? I became a follower of Jesus because in a way that was made real and known to me, God manifest his presence. It wasn't like somebody just gave me a bunch of book learning. God met me. God revealed himself to me. So this morning, I want to really just lean into this desire that David had for the manifest special presence of God that we might see more of that in our lives. So the scriptures teach us that we ought to seek and crave the special presence of God. Psalm 105 verse four says, look to the Lord and his strength, seek his face always. A people who seek the face of God. And so most of us here would desire more of the manifest presence of God in our lives. But what I want to talk about this morning is things that attract the manifest presence of God and things that repel the manifest presence of God. Now, just to be clear, we cannot put God on our Google calendars and our iPhones and say, at this time, God, show up. We could pray that, but there's no guarantee that if you say Tuesday at seven o'clock, I'm going to have a manifest experience with God's presence. But there are things we can do to show up in a place where God would pour out his blessing. Well, it's like this, if right now, for whatever reason, in the middle of the June and summertime, it just started raining in San Ramon, just pouring out, and we hear the rain hitting the roof. Now, in here, we're not going to experience the rain. You say, you are brilliant. Where did you go to seminary? Um, in order to experience the heavens breaking forth, we got to go out of the building into the place where we can experience the rain. And essentially, what I want to talk about this morning is how to get out into the rain, into the place where God's presence is there for us. And there are things that attract and things that repel the manifest presence of God. So first of all, things that attract the manifest presence of God. Number one, 
You might jot this down, note takers, theologians, thinkers, you're all theologians, remember. So jot this down. Um, number one, personal holiness. Now, some of you let out an internal, oh, personal holiness. Like there might be a lot of things that people might describe me as. Like he's half Mexican, he has green eyes, he likes pour over coffee, he lives in Portland, Oregon, he's got a blonde wife who's very pretty, and I don't know how he did that or whatever. Um, but holy may not be one of the attributes in which people would describe me. But I think holy gets sort of a bad name. Because I think when you think of holy, you might have images of God. You might think of Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments, or you might think of a priest in royal and regal robes dipping his hands in the holy water. And you think, I'm not that. I'm not Moses, and I'm not, I'm not one of those priests. I'm not an angel. But really, I think when you think about holy, think about whole, not lacking, not incomplete, but also think holy and happy. So when the Bible describes Jesus, he's described as holy and happy, that holy is happy. So the book of Hebrews, when it talks about Jesus in this one place, says that because he loved righteousness and hated iniquity, God anointed him with the oil of gladness. So Jesus was the guy who you want to be around. The earthly Jesus wasn't some gaunt fellow with blonde hair and blue eyes that looked like he hadn't eaten in a while. The, actually, he was accused of being a glutton and a wine-bibber. So he liked to party, apparently, or, or whatever, in the most sanctified, holy way. But a holy Jesus is a happy Jesus. He loved what was right, hated what was evil, and he was anointed with the oil of gladness. That's why people left everything to follow this homeless rabbi. It wasn't a prosperity gospel, y'all. He was saying, you want to follow me? Birds have nests. Foxes have dens. I'm homeless. And they said, we want to follow you. Not for the money or the paycheck, right? Because there was some life in him. And that's essentially what it is to be holy, is to be happy. The pathway to happy is a pathway of personal holiness. Now, listen to what the psalmist says about this. Psalm 41, verse 12 says, because of my integrity, you will hold me and set me in your presence forever. Psalm 51. Now, if you don't know this, Psalm 51, David wrote this at a very different point in his life. He writes Psalm 27 when he's a young guy running from the spear of Saul, the king. He wrote Psalm 51 after he blew it big time. Like his whole, he, he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then he had her husband Uriah bumped off. So that's, you know, that's not good. Shouldn't do that. Um, big blow it. But this is what he writes about God's presence in the middle of one of his lowest moments as a human being. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. But then note this, do not cast me away from your what? Presence. Now, is it possible that David's could be cast away from God's omnipresence? Yes or no? If God is everywhere at all times in his fullness, can David be cast away from God's manifest presence? No, because God's everywhere. The psalmist said in 139, Psalm 139, he said, if I go to heaven, you're there. If I go down to hell, you are there as well. So David can't get away from the omnipresence of God. What is, what is David asking for? Cast me not away from your special presence. Manifest presence, right? I don't want your special presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So David's desire is for God's felt presence, to be close to the Lord. 
through personal holiness. He had just been unholy. He's coming back to God in full return and saying, God, restore to me a, a right spirit. I've, I've, I've defiled my hands and my life and my body and my mind. Restore to me my salvation. Give it back to me so that I can be in your thick, weighty presence. Now, I want you to understand something here because I think this could get misunderstood as legalism. Holiness is, our, our personal holiness is not how we are justified before God. How many of you know that term, that theological term justified? Just as if I'd never sinned at all. That when God looks at you, you're clean. How many of you worked for that to get done? So you know, right? I mean, I know Darren preaches the gospel. Sammy throws down some gospel here. You guys know that the reason that God looks at you as justified and holy and right is not because of you, right? It's because of whom? Jesus Christ. So when we talk about personal holiness, it's not striving so that God will love you or accept you, but rather it's to make sure that the relationship has no separation in it. Because the Bible talks about how sin has wages or consequences, that sin separates us from God in our personal relationship with him. That's the thing we don't want in our lives. And so we return to God in repentance against sexual immorality, against our pride and our jealousy and our anger and our envy and our apathy. We come back to God, not so that we'll be approved by God. We are already approved by God. Amen? Because of Jesus, I was preaching there, so you should, that was the time, that was your cue. We should put it up, cue, say amen, okay? Talk back to me. <laughs> You are approved by God because of Jesus. And so you stand before God righteous. The reason you pursue personal holiness is not to be justified, but to be close to God. So the Bible says things like, we should not quench the Holy Spirit. Quenching the Holy Spirit is when you disobey God's command on your life to go and be his witness in the world. You disobey God's calling on your life. The Bible also says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. We grieve the Holy Spirit through sin direct acts of rebellion. And so to return back to fellowship with God is to say, God, simply, I have sinned. And God knows that. He's omniscient, right? And I'm returning back to you. And the Bible says, if we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, he's what? Faithful and just to do what? Forgive us our sins. Don't be afraid to get it wrong. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's simply returning to God in repentance and confession. Amen? The second thing that attracts the presence of God, and this is one that I love, and that is the praises of his people. You guys like to get your praise on. I saw some dancing, some hip shaking, you know, when the band was on it, you know, everyone's out here praising the Lord. Well, notice Psalm 22 verse three says, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. Now I love this image of God being enthroned on praise. So you imagine here while you know, we're singing together, just lifting up God's name and our hands are up and we're just, our voices are loud. We're just singing to the Lord. What we're doing there is we're constructing a throne. And God says, when my people will gather together and praise me, that's a throne I sit upon. And so the, really essentially the psalmist, if you read the Psalms, it's like a study on how to worship. And the psalmist often calls us to kneel to lift up hands, to lift up our voices. Psalm 150, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. With timbrels and instruments and electric guitars and guys on the bass and singing and lifting up our voice to the Lord. So for some people though, 
who follow Jesus, their wiring is not emotional. Their wiring is not enthusiastic. And so the church has always had this really interesting polarization. There's the often can be the emotionally charged church, and then there's the intellectually charged church. And you know, if you've been around church world, you've seen both. The emotionally charged church looks at the intellectually charged church and goes, you guys have no heart. I come on. You're just like dead people. This is a morgue. It's very intellectual and very refined, but really, come on, like somebody dance or something. Lift up your hands. The intellectually charged church looks at the emotionally charged church and says, you have no head. You're not thinking. Like study the Greek and Hebrew and get into the Bible, get, get some doctrine and theology. Now the Bible, when the Bible talks about loving the Lord our God, Deuteronomy 6, the great Shema, the Bible says that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Church is a full body experience. You should be tired when you go home from church, not because it was a boring long lecture, but I mean like perspiring, you know? Wouldn't it be cool you came back home from church, you're all like kind of, you know, sweating and, you know, whoo, you know, and your neighbor's like, did you just go to the gym? You're like, no, I just came from church. I was dancing. I got a workout at church because I'm praising the name of the Lord God Almighty. If there's a reason to get excited, it's because of Jesus. Thank you for that. Um, somebody knew that they should say at that moment. <laughs> In 2 Samuel chapter 6, one of those great stories of David, again, um, He's moving the ark of God, which is the place, think Indiana Jones, but you know, the real thing. He's moving the ark of God, the place where God's presence was, back into Israel. And as he's bringing it back into Jerusalem, um, there's a point where he stops and he begins to dance before the Lord with all his might in his linen ephod. Now you're like, what's that? Just think whitey tidies, right? He took off his outer garment and the Bible says he danced before the Lord in all of his might. Now, I don't know how many of y'all could dance. I, I, I dance, but no one would say I'm a dancer. Actually, my wife and I, we took uh, dancing lessons. I think we were trying to do the salsa merengue and uh, you're supposed to move your hips this way and your body that way. I just couldn't comprehend. There's like, you know, 20 couples in the room learning to dance. The entire time, the dance instructor was behind me correcting me. So just to let you know, like if I dance before the Lord, it's going to be back there and no one should see it right now. But David is dancing before the Lord. <laughs> Thank you for that, Darren. He's maybe he's seen me shake my hips and he knows that's uh, something you don't want to see. Um, David's dancing before the Lord with all of his might. It says if no one else was there and his wife was watching, her name was Michael. When he comes home, she says, you made a fool of yourself today. Dancing out there in your underwear in front of the whole nation? You're supposed to be the king. And David said, classic, it was what I did, woman. <laughs> he may not have said that, but um, <laughs> what I did, I did before the Lord. And then he says this, I'm gonna become even more indignified than this. So if you're embarrassed by me dancing my underwear out in the street, it's gonna get even crazier. So you just might wanna get out of here. <laughs> But the, 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 the essence of what we are called to do as a people is that God has, is, is so beautiful and magnificent that it, it requires praise to truly encounter the lovely one. One of my favorite Brits uh, of, of a, a generation ago, C.S. Lewis, anybody heard of him? Clive Staples Lewis, famous for the Chronicles of Narnia. 
He wrote in a reflection on the Psalms about before he was a Christian, when he used to read the Psalms, God saying, praise me, praise me. And he said, God sounded to him like an old woman seeking compliments. So he was like, what's the deal with God wanting us to praise him? Does he need that? Does he like have some kind of self-esteem issues? But later he discovered the truth of praise. And, and I think this is important as we think about our praise gatherings here. He said this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the joy, now this is great, the joy is not complete until it is expressed. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are, you young lovers. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Have you ever been somewhere and just seen beauty, like something God made? I spent the last week with Darren and Samuel in Lake Tahoe. It's pretty there. We're having this meeting. We had this theologian from Western Seminary, Gary Bashir, just a baller, just like mind huge, almost omniscient, right? Uh, and, and he's standing there, he's giving us this great lecture about culture and everything. But the unfortunate thing for him is he's teaching here and right in back of us is these glass panels and you see Lake Tahoe from out there. And it was like right at sunset on this clear, beautiful June uh, evening and the sun was just falling by the lake and that sunset was just fire. And we were just all like, oh. people were grabbing their cameras and you know, and like, we're sorry, Gary, but God has just shown us beauty. And literally there's almost this existential need to go, oh. have you ever been to the Grand Canyon or some beautiful mountain precipice? Or, you know, when I first saw my wife, it was just a need to just express, woo, woman, you know, wow. Because it's not because that beauty needs me to tell it it's beautiful. It's beautiful if I sit there with my arms folded asleep. It's still beautiful. But as a human being, the experience for me is not complete until I let God know or beauty know that I am just fully overwhelmed by what I'm seeing. The same is true, even much, much more magnified when we come to magnify the name of the Lord. We magnify his name because, not because he needs it, but because we need it. We need to tell God how beautiful he is. And it's into that environment that we attract the special manifest presence of God. There are also things that repel the presence of God. The two I'll mention, the first is pride. Psalm 138, verse six for though the Lord is high, note this, he regards the lowly, but the haughty, and not the kind of haughty you're thinking, the, the proud person, but the haughty he knows from afar. James chapter four, verse six says this, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. How many of you realize that God's economy is very different than ours? The kingdom of God is upside down from the world. Or maybe it's right side up and we're upside down. In whatever way we look at it, God's economy is different. He says, Jesus said controversial things like if you, the first are gonna be last. The last are gonna be first. The way up is down and the way down is up. Jesus said, if you wanna be great, become the servant of all. Love your enemies, take low positions, walk in humility. God resists the proud. 
so to be proud in God's presence is to have him Heisman Trophy stiff arm you, right? God's just like resist pride. But to the humble, he gives grace. Now, which one do you wanna be, right? I wanna be a recipient of the grace of God through humility. Truth of the matter is nobody comes into faith, into saving faith, into following Jesus apart from brokenness and humility. The, the psalmist said, a broken and contrite spirit, Lord, you'll not deny, you'll not, you'll not turn away. The value in the kingdom of brokenness is so high that really reverse of what we think, something in the kingdom only begins, a person in the kingdom only begins to have value when it's broken. We're broken into life. Our economy says when it's broken, it loses value. Whatever it is, broken things aren't worth much. But in the kingdom of God, God puts a premium on your broken place. We all came to genuine faith because we were broken. And it's that brokenness that we live in. To live in pride is to repel the presence of God. To be broken into life is to invite God's presence into our life. And then finally, of things that repel the presence of God, and you might be wondering, I wonder what he's gonna say. Is he gonna say something like murder, adultery, lying? Yes, but this is probably one that, you know, on the prayer wall or, you don't, you know, make an appointment with Pastor Darren or Samuel to confess this sin, but it is something that repairs, repels, excuse me, the presence of God, and that is complacency or indifference. We might call it New Testament, lukewarm. Listen to the writer of Proverbs, Proverbs 1.32. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. Now, you might just kind of push back on that and say, well, you know, you don't know me well enough, but my wiring, I'm just not one of those enthusiastic sorts. I'm just more quiet. I'm introverted in my personality. Um, on the Myers-Briggs, I'm an I, you know, or whatever. Um, I'm just kind of the quieter sort. But the truth of the matter is that the, however your wiring is, it doesn't mean you have to be some kind of cheerleader or something. But, but the idea being that essentially we are all enthusiastic about something. Now, you know this word enthousi enthusiastic, just break the word in half, in theos, in God. So to be enthusiastic is to be in God. And if I knew you well enough, I could probably push your buttons to get you enthusiastic. Whether that came out in excitement or anger, I could get you to show even the most quiet among you. There's probably a button I could push that would, you know, you Oakland Raiders fans. I mean, I was looking up on the internet, Oakland Raiders fans, that's a scary group of human beings. The, re the really like intense ones, I mean, because y'all's colors is black and gray and white, when you paint your face like that, I mean, it looks horrifying, this is scary. Looks like a gang or something. Um, but, but, you know, grown men who have jobs and, you know, mortgages and responsibility will lose their mind when they're going to support their team, right? I mean, those Packers fans with the big cheese on their head, I'm like, has that guy just got an intellectual issue or what? No, that guy's probably got a PhD, but he's wearing cheese on his head. Or are you teenagers? I'm like, oh, mom, dad, don't take me to church. They're just boring. I don't want to be at church. Sit there with your arms folded and, oh, what's that guy going to just shut up so I can go listen to Justin Bieber or whatever, you know? <laughs> 
If you got concerts to go see T-Swift, we would see you all of a sudden like cell phone out, like, like, you know, because enthusiasm is not about whether or not you can get there. It's just the buttons that are pushed to create enthusiasm. I mean, name your thing, whether you're a fisher hunter or a sports guy or a mall lady or mall guy, I don't know, whatever. Those are the things that when those buttons are pushed, all of a sudden, even the most passive among us becomes enthusiastic. We're all passionate people. If only I knew the right button to push. But listen to this. What causes passion in me is the clearest indicator of what I most treasure. And as the Lord becomes center of my life, and I desire above all else the presence of God, then I realize that it is God himself is the only one who satisfies. The great theologian Augustine said that there's a God-shaped hole in every man's heart that only God can fill. We are empty before he fills us. So you might think it's a romantic relationship or a new Tesla or more square footage on the house or promotion at work or some kind of experience. But for those of you who've lived long enough to have some of those things and check some of your, your boxes, you know that you're still left empty because you were made to be filled by God and in him alone will you find ultimate satisfaction. So there's this one guy named Paul. Anybody ever heard of him? There's like Jesus and Paul. And Paul's our pastor. He is. He's just our pastor. And, and he, before Jesus, was an incredible man, even though he persecuted the church. But I mean, he was educated. He had the equivalent of two PhDs. He was trilingual. I can barely speak English well. He spoke three languages. He was educated. He called himself Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees. Among the religious class, he was top of his class. His teacher, his rabbi Gamaliel, said historically the only complaint he had against Saul of Tarsus, who later became Paul, was that he couldn't give him enough material to keep him occupied. So he was this very accomplished man. And in Philippians 3, he talks about all his accomplishments. Then he becomes a follower of Jesus and he travels the known world with the gospel shipwrecked, beaten, rods, thrown in prison. I mean, incredible guy, miracle worker, gospel preacher, Bible writer. That's a pretty cool guy, right? Like, that's a resume right there. I wrote the Bible. Enough said. I get the trump card on that one. But he says, of all these things, Philippians 3, I just want to read this and then I'm going to draw to a close. Philippians 3.8. He says, what is more? I consider everything. It's all of my accomplishments. All my crowns, everything I've done, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing Jesus is my greatest accomplishment, Paul would say. With all my degrees on the wall and all my accomplishments, knowing Jesus is everything. It's the most. For whose sake I have lost everything. Then he says this, even what I, this is what he says to what he's lost in life. I consider them garbage. Some of you might have a translation that says, I consider them dung, horse manure, cow pies. I consider all my accomplishments, everything garbage, dung, that I may gain Christ. That's a man who understood how valuable it is to know the Lord. To really know him, not just in his omnipresence, but in his special presence. Now, I finish with this. As I mentioned, maybe, I have four kids. Um, the Bible said, be fruitful and multiply. Me and my wife said, okay. Um, 
So my oldest son, whose name Silas, is 18. And I know I look like I'm only 25, but uh, just get a little closer. Um, when he was just a little guy, he had this little plastic toy gorilla. For those of you who raised kids, you know, they, just, they find their toy. And this was his toy. Like, he never let it go. It was like a little monkey. He was always in his hand holding his gorilla, right? His gorilla. That's how he said it, my gorilla. Um, and, you know, he's a little guy's voice is all deep now. And you know, his barrel chest, big guy. You know, he's a little guy. He's just a high Mickey Mouse voice. Hi, Daddy. You know, it's awesome. Um, so he's my firstborn. So every night before we put him to bed, it was inevitable he was going to have his toy gorilla in his hand because that was his treasure at that moment, his precious. Um, so we put him to bed, and we knowing that he's not going to really get to sleep if we don't take his toy away from him. He'll play with it. So we take it out of his hand, put it on the top shelf where he can't reach it. He goes to sleep. Next morning, I get up super early. Uh, I used to do a radio show, so I'm getting prepped for my radio show, and um, it's like 4.35 in the morning, um, an ungodly hour to be awake. And so I'm there kind of working on stuff, and then I hear the door to his bedroom open. And I just see the silhouette, you know, it's just so cute. Three years old, bedhead, Mr. Blanky, he called him, and his bear Solomon, he comes tumbling down the hallway. You know, and he's my first kid, so I'm having this, like, I have this vision of parental bliss, this moment, like in slow motion, where he sees me, Daddy, let's go of everything and runs toward me. Daddy, Daddy, I love you. Jumps up in my lap, requests a morning Bible study, and I would teach him about the manifest presence of God. But that is not how that happened. The very first words out of his mouth that morning were, Daddy, Daddy, can I have my toy gorilla? He'd been thinking about it all night. He'd probably have dreams about his toy gorilla. And I was thinking, you don't even say hi? Not daddy, I love you. Not, you know, how are you, dad? Why are you up so early? Can I help you? No, dad, I need something that only someone your size can get for me. So, you know, I'm smart enough to realize that the only way that my son is gonna get on my lap is if I go into his room and do something for him he could not do for himself. He wants this toy girl. That's everything to him. He's three, he can't think beyond that. So I, so I get for him what he cannot get for himself. But before I give it to him, I draw him near to me. So I use that toy gorilla to lure him out of his bedroom, over to my office chair. I sit down and there I lure him on my lap. And there we sat, father and son, both having what we wanted. Silas had his toy gorilla. I had Silas. And he's 18 now. I don't even know where the toy gorilla is. He don't play with it anymore. He has other interests. Um, he doesn't sit on my lap. But in that moment, I realized that he only cares in this moment about what he can comprehend as life. And it was reduced to a toy. But I want a relationship that goes beyond this. And so I'll give him that thing that he thinks is everything in order that I might have him. And for so many of us, the thing that we think is the biggest, most important thing, God looks at that like a dad and says, that's your toy gorilla. And I know you think it's everything and you need me to get it for you, God would say. And I'll get you that as long as you realize at the end, what you really want is me all along. You know, you really don't want anything else. You really only want Jesus. Now you think you want romantic relationship. You think you need a car, a house, 
and a job and all those things. And it's got to be epic. And you've got to have a lot of followers on Instagram. You've got to be YouTube famous. And you've got to have all these things. And yet God would say, that's just, that's just dumb. That's just a toy gorilla. And if you need that, I'll give you what you need. But realize at the end of the day, what you really, 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 really want, what you need is only the Lord. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this great church. Thank you for Darren and Samuel and Tracy and Marcy and just the elders and the leaders and all the men and women that call this church family and home. And God, I know that for so many of my brothers and sisters, they're already here. They're in that place where presence of God is what they long for, crave, and deeply pursue. But I also know that in my own heart, there can be the love of other things that aren't Jesus. Not even bad things, but just other things that I think will make my life. But God, when we taste and see that you're good, when we draw near to you, God, when we have an experience with your presence, it just seems like everything else is so much less. It's like little kids' plastic toys in comparison. It's like Paul said, it's just dung. Even what I've lost, it doesn't matter for the surpassing knowledge of the glory of God in Christ. So God, I just would pray even now that God, if our hearts are in love with other things, God, you would break that in us, God, that we would be able to see it for what it is and to recognize all I ever really wanted is to be known and to know Jesus, to experience the manifest presence of God. So forgive us for our pride and our complacency. Draw us into personal holiness that we might push aside those things which would cause separation between you and us, God, and restore unto us the joy of your salvation. And we just praise and worship you now and receive the gift of your spirit in your presence, in Jesus' name. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Bay Area, we would love for you to join us at a Sunday gathering in San Ramon. For directions, gathering times, or information about our Brave Kids program, visit us at brave.church. Also, if you want to help support what God is doing through Brave, you can give online to the Brave Foundation at brave.church forward slash foundation.